Hey folks, welcome back to the Olive Leaf podcast. Thank you for joining me again, or if this is your first time, hello. Um, this is only episode two, so we're all new here, really. Um, this week, I wanted to talk about some Tudor history. I've always been a big Tudor fan. Um, I'm a fan girl. I'm a history fan girl. What can I say? That is essentially what this podcast is all about, just nerding out. So hopefully you'll be interested. Um, I'm going to take it a bit magical, as usual, and talk about a very mystical and very interesting character called John Dee, who was around in the Elizabethan period. Um, But I want to give you a bit of background, because basically I just want an excuse to talk about Queen Elizabeth, so I'm going to talk about her first. When it comes to Queen Elizabeth, I am so here for her. She is just a boss-ass... B-I-T-C-H, in case anybody young is listening. Sorry, I don't mean to use rude words. Um, But she is just the epitome of Yas Queen. She's great. Uh, She was born in 1533, daughter of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn. Uh, She became Queen of England in 1558, and she died in 1603. So she actually had a really long reign and is in, I don't know, the top 10 of English reigning monarchs in terms of length. That's not the way you say that sentence, all the words were in the wrong order, but you get what I mean. (laughs) It was under the reign of Elizabeth that England became a real power. So it became really powerful in politics, uh, was really rich and wealthy in trade, had really good trade relations all the way across Europe, uh, and even was a real kind of powerhouse of the arts. So, I mean, we've all heard of Shakespeare. (laughs) Who hasn't heard of Shakespeare? What hole are you living in? Um, She was his patron. She was really fond of theatre and all things fun. Um, So it's largely because of her that we know him so well. Um, So, I mean, well done. Thanks, Shakespeare. He was a bad boy, so we like that. Um, Before her, Henry VIII had been the Tudor guy that everybody knows. And his main kind of remembrance, remember all, in Neville Longbottom's kind of remember all, would just be a picture of Henry VIII and loads of dissolved monasteries in ruins around him because he destroyed all the monasteries in favour of Protestantism because, obviously, he changed the religion of the country so he could marry another woman. Who wouldn't do that? Um, So he had been staunchly Protestant and Church of England was created under him. Uh, His daughter, Mary Tudor, from his first marriage, had been staunchly Catholic um, and she had got the title Bloody Mary for persecuting all those who were against her. Um, And though Elizabeth herself was Protestant, she was actually probably the most tolerant religious ruler of the Tudor dynasty. Uh, I say tolerant, I mean, people still obviously died, but this is Middle England, so (laughs) Middle Earth, I nearly said, I wish. This is the Middle Ages, so everyone dies all the time. But um, she was probably the most tolerant. And though it was an outwardly Protestant country, she was relatively lenient with Catholics. And if they kind of kept to themselves, came to the church every Sunday, but they could kind of do what they wanted in their own time. So she was pretty chill. Um, I know there's loads of history buffs out there screaming at me, but what about Mary, Queen of Scots? And yeah, yeah, fine. I mean, that was a a low point. (laughs) Um, She did have her cousin executed because she was a legitimate heir to the throne and she was a Catholic woman, so... She was like every Catholic in the country and in Scotland and everywhere wanted Mary Queen of Scots on the throne. And because of various uncovered spy plots, Elizabeth ended up 
Her hand was kind of forced and she had to execute Mary. But this is a really touchy subject for me because I love both Elizabeth and I love Mary. So I don't really want to go into it because I might cry or it just might be long enough for a whole nother podcast. Maybe I'll do that a different time. <laughs> Apart from that, Elizabeth did many other amazing things. Personally, I am most grateful for the fact that the Spanish Armada happened during her reign and it failed. So I'm basically thanking her for not being Spanish because I can't roll my R's. So I would really struggle. So I'm really glad. Um, it wasn't really her. It was mainly weather. Blah, blah, blah. Google it because it's quite cool. But anyway, that was all during her reign and she helped me dodge a bullet. And if anybody can give me actual tips on how to roll my R's, that would be great. Comment below. Thanks. Um, she never married... She never had kids. Uh, she don't need no man. She was happy being independent on her own. She actually even wore her coronation ring on her wedding finger because she was married to her people and her subjects. Um, so I think that's pretty cool. And if she had have got married, her husband would have outranked her. So she would have still been queen, but her husband then would have become king rather than now like Prince Philip is prince. So he doesn't outrank the queen. Um, so she knew what she was doing, even though every leader of every country wanted her to get married to someone that they had some sort of relationship to so she did well and uh, until having such a long reign and having no kids that was a real feat and after her reign finished she handed her crown over to james who was mary queen of scots son um so i mean she kind of did her cousin a solid ish so i'm all about cruelty free makeup nowadays um Cruelty from animals, so I don't want to have them tested on animals, let alone cruelty on me. I don't want to be putting anything on my face that could make me break out or that could make my skin flake off or make me die. But that's exactly what the Elizabethans did. Uh, they put a lot of lead, white paint on their face. Uh, this actually could have been why Elizabeth ended up dying in the end. I mean, <laughs> everybody dies in the end. Sorry, morbid. Um, but this could have been the cause of her death to some extent, because uh, she would have definitely poisoned herself from this. But it was because she had faced smallpox many times throughout her life and was really smallpox scarred on her face. But the fact that she survived was amazing. Like, quite honestly, however much I love the middle... Oh my gosh, I nearly keep saying middle earth. What is wrong with me? I know I want to be an elf, but this is too much. If I want to be in the medieval period, it would be great, but I fully know I would already have died. I wouldn't have made it to 24. I haven't got very good eyesight. I'm a celiac, so any bread would have just killed me already. I'd have probably got hit by a bread cart walking across the road, so double whammy. I just, I wouldn't be alive. So <laughs> it's impressive that she managed to get over smallpox multiple times and still be queen. So kudos to her fortified health. I'm, I, I would like some. Um, but she also wore a massive wig and had, was famed for her gingery hair of the Tudor dynasty. Um, but we still remember her as a badass, so she clearly wouldn't have looked that hot by the end of her life. She was kind of getting a bit old, got a lot of lead on her face and a lot of scars beneath it with a big wig and probably no teeth because your teeth didn't last very long in Tudor England. So usually when we've got women that are impressive in some way in history, they're pretty or they're hot in some way or they're talented but yeah, they're usually really pretty but she probably really wasn't so I really like that we remember her as such a badass um it probably helped that she made 
She, she only liked one painting of herself during her lifetime. So she made all other artists copy that painting rather than actually paint her. So, I mean, that's quite a good idea. She knows her angles. What can I say? I've accidentally got massively distracted just fully talking about Queen Elizabeth. This is not what this podcast is about. I'm really sorry. Uh, but you can tell she's quite cool. So if you haven't heard about her... <laughs> Where have you been? But also go check her out because there's some cool facts in there that I haven't even haven't even touched on and you'd find really interesting. But the whole reason I'm talking about her is because I want to talk about John D. Sorry, long story not cut short. My bad. But anyway, John D was born in 1527 and I can't really describe him succinctly either. Uh, he was a mathematician, alchemist, astrologer, geographer, philosopher, historian, master of magic and arcane knowledge, esoteric knowledge, everything, like a really impressive list. And that probably doesn't cover half of what he did. And I mean, if I could actually go back in time, I think I would meet him of all historical figures because I think he's a bit underrated. Whereas uh, people like Darwin or even Elizabeth I, they've had a lot of, they've got a lot of good press. <laughs> hiccuped at the same time so I squeaked there sorry um but I think John D would be super cool because he would be able to teach you so much and I reckon it would probably still be relevant today um so yeah he would be kind of Tudor England's Stephen Hawking or Alan Turing that kind of thing accidentally really smoothly slid in to my next point which was that he went to Cambridge. So, so does Stephen Hawking and Alan Turing. And me. So I can almost say I was his classmate-ish. At least I went to the same university as him. Uh, he was originally Welsh. And he went to Cambridge to study maths. Uh, he was part of John's college originally. And he later was a fellow of Trinity when it was being founded. And I mean, I was at Jesus College. But, I mean, Dumbledore and Luna Lovegood, they both went to Hogwarts, even though they were in different houses. So it's basically the same thing. He was like Dumbledore. And I mean, I'm kind of like a, an English Luna Lovegood-ish. I mean, I am Irish, but let us that's another thing. Anyway, <laughs> uh, the fact that um, he went to Cambridge to study meant that he got a grasp of maths, but kind of wet his appetites. We carried on and he wanted to keep going and study more. So after university, he, he kind of went, maybe he's the one that founded a gap year. Because uh, he wandered around Europe and he studied at various different institutions, working with lots of different scholars of the time and gathered information on things magical, mystical, everything really. And it was kind of during this period that he developed an interest in astrology. So yeah, he basically kicked off the spiritual gap year phenomenon. Big respect to him. He probably didn't wear harem trousers. That might be a more recent occurrence. Also, definitely didn't go to Thailand and go to a full moon party. But he, he still explored and learned loads of extra stuff. And I would quite like to go and do that now. And just somehow, if somebody could give me money to go and transport myself to John D's European travel plans and learn all of the magical stuff, I'd be very grateful. DM me or message me and I'll send you my PayPal. But after he'd learned all this knowledge, um, he began lecturing and he began lecturing on natural magic, kind of maths crossed with the occult, crossed with geography and geology and science and space and I don't really know, everything, <laughs> everything fun or cool. Um, 
But he also collected a massive amount of astrological and geographical equipment. Uh, I reckon my home would look sick with some of that stuff in it. So I just, I think I just want to be this guy, really. Um, But he established himself as a really clever dude. And he caught the attention of Elizabeth I and her Privy Council. And soon enough, he had some really important and wealthy clients. And he had amassed himself one of the most formidable libraries in Europe. So he was just on the rise and became the expert in all things occult um, and esoteric. And it's really cool that he became so powerful and influ- influential while he was being while he was so high up in occultist studies and practicing things like alchemy and astrology. And this was all during such a religious period. So even though his work was classed more mathematics or science and geography rather than witchcraft, because it kind of bordered on a similar kind of realm, he actually did get arrested in 1555, just before Elizabeth became queen, um, for conjuring and also for treason, because he cast Queen Elizabeth, well, Princess Elizabeth's horoscope um, which apparently was treason, so don't cast the Queen's horoscope lest you die. Um, But somehow, and I don't know how, but he was absolved of that crime. So either the kind of bishop that was involved believed that he was truly a religious man uh, and absolved him from the crime, or, I don't know, he sweet-talked the bishop and slipped him a magical potion or something, but whatever happened, he got off the hook and carried on his career. And he ended up living until he was... I think 81, which is mental for the medieval period. Have you heard of the term British Empire? Yes, you have. Well, Dee was the first one to use it, um, and he became a royal consultant to Elizabeth, and he helped the geographical expansion of the British Empire. Have you heard of the term the British Empire? Yes, you all say in unison into your phones or laptops or listening devices. Well, Dee was the first one to actually use that term and kind of coined it. Um, And he became a royal consultant to Elizabeth and helped literally with the physical geographical expansion of England. He poured himself over books and charts and maps and kind of worked out where should be a part of the British Empire. Um, He even said that because King Arthur, big up my boy, um, had included Ireland, Greenland... Iceland and some bits of the North Pole under King Arthur's control, then Elizabeth should as well. Um, And I think maybe just the fact that Dee talked about Arthurian legend is just like kind of like cocaine to me. So, I mean, I don't know what that's like. So please don't don't call anyone. I'm fine. Um, But he was clearly a big geography man. So that was his role for quite a long time. But soon enough, he branched out into his other areas of interest Um, further into the dark arts, if you would. And he created a partnership with a guy called Edward Kelly. Now, Edward Kelly wasn't a professor or scholar or anything like that. He was actually a medium and an occultist himself. Um, And Dee and him began to work together. Um, I think Dee kind of was very impressed because he'd met many mediums over his time, but never somebody as convincing as Kelly. Um, And they began their quest into angel work and summoning angels for scientific and for divinational purposes. <laughs> divinational, I just made that word up, please don't use it. Um, 
But Dee claimed that the Archangel Michael came to him in a vision brought about by Kelly. And that's what kind of sparked this bond between them that Dee genuinely believed Kelly and his um, his skills, really. So this is where they they started their adventures together. And if you have ever heard of John Dee, you will know him in association with Edward Kelly. It's, they're kind of like, I don't know, Bill and Ben. And they're not flower pot men. Why? Only two people I could think of. Bloody flower pot men. Anyway, um, they lived together at Mortlake. Uh, Dee had his house on the Thames and Kelly kind of moved in. Um, I think maybe both their wives moved in. Maybe Kelly's wife also moved in and they all lived in the big house together. A big party. I don't know. Um, there's, there's not a huge amount of information about this kind of period because I'll describe what happens later, but a lot of records and a lot of, ironically, a lot of the books that were written in which is all what Dee was about, have been lost, which is such a shame because I think they'd be really cool. Um, but this is where they lived. This is where they studied. They summoned angels, read countless books and wrote down all their angelic communications. Um, there's accounts of the windows being constantly shut with the curtains pulled over it so the outside light didn't affect their work. Um, and together, Kelly and Dee basically created or transcribed... Uh, according to them, a whole language in itself, um, the language that was apparently used by God to create the universe, the Christian God, obviously, uh, and the language used by angels, and that's called the Enochian alphabet, and it's, it's, <laughs> it's a weird alphabet that's kind of made its way into modern culture and is in programs on TV about kind of supernaturally stuff. So it's well known even now, and some spiritual people use the Enochian alphabet still and I bet most people don't know that D was the guy that kind of did it all um so using this alphabet they transcribed and understood loads of different messages from angels they even had loads that they didn't understand and big charts of coded messages that they could they themselves couldn't even work out which is unusual considering they created the language but anyway <laughs> um they wrote countless books on the subject and it was just incredibly complicated and took an incredibly large amount of work and time. So again, it's really interesting, I think, this crossover between magic and religion um, and that their work was so widely accepted and revered, even by Elizabeth I. Um, so if a monarch is thinking it's really cool, even though it borders on the supernatural and the occult and witchcraft of the time, um, it was still widely accepted. So... The fact that communicating with spirits is usually reserved for witchcraft as well as divination. Because it was angelic, it became intrinsically linked with Christianity and therefore became a science to an extent. Um, and I think, I think that's a really interesting subject about kind of how people will put aside prejudices if it helps them because I think Elizabeth I relied on Dee quite a lot for kind of advice and he was almost like a tutor to her in some respects for a period of time. So... Yeah, I just think it's interesting that Henry VIII literally changed the entire church so he could marry Anne Boleyn. And then people get persecuted for witchcraft and yet <laughs> one of the big scholars of the period is basically a witch. So it's just there's a lot of inconsistencies in Tudor history, but I think that's what makes it so fun. So Dee and Kelly could almost be classed as the first renowned magicians of their time. Not like pulling rabbits out of hats, magicians. I mean, they might have, I don't know. But men of science who made their way really high up 
the food chain of Tudor society um, and became well regarded across Europe, across the whole of Europe. And it sounds like everything is great. This is all happy. They're heroes. They're just big geeks that have done really well. Excellent. I aim to be this. But unfortunately, the happy ending didn't happen. And it's quite sad. Um, Dee and Kelly's relationship kind of broke down slowly but surely over a period of time. So they initially, the two of them went across to Poland where they had a very, very wealthy patron who had offered to give them a lot of money for um, a set amount of work that he wanted done. So they travelled out there, but it turned out when they got there, the guy was actually bankrupt and really kind of almost an outcast of his own society. So they then became became kind of nomads, travelling around, selling their services to anybody that kind of high up enough to want that kind of... Who I mean, who really wants a travelling occultist? Not many people. But they kind of made their way across Europe that way, studying as they went. Um, fine, stressful, not ideal. A bit of a... Like an actual gap year, really. <laughs> kind of roughing it a little bit. But the relationship really turned sour when Kelly informed Dee that he'd had a vision from the angels and that the angels had told him that the two men must swap wives. Like, what? <laughs> Up till now, even though we're talking to angels and we're doing horoscopes for the queen, it all kind of sounds pretty legit, but as soon as you start bringing in wife swapping, it gets a bit weird. And it, it kind of shows Dee's admiration of Kelly, really, that he actually did agree to it. Um, and I don't know this in-between phase, whether the actual wife swap happened or whether it was going to happen and didn't, or whether, it, I don't know what happened. But anyway, Kelly suddenly disappeared, uh, and he left a huge debt behind him, and just disappeared in a cloud of mystery. Kind of like, you know, in Scooby-Doo, when someone runs away really quickly, and they leave like a literal cloud behind them. I'm imagining him like that. Um, and he almost left a kind of legacy behind him of people wondering what happened and I think there were rumours that he became a mercenary in Europe somewhere so nobody knows what happened to him or where he went or what he became but that's when Dee and Kelly kind of broke it off and their famous relationship crumbled um, and Dee returned to his own home in Mortlake and he, he was there with his wife so the wife swap mustn't have happened, I don't know it's too weird for me to try and think about really um, but he returned to his home and his brother-in-law had been looking after it for him, but he had gone to wreck and ruin. His ha he'd been robbed. His books were all robbed. Lots of his equipment it was just kind of almost a wreck. Um, so he ended up almost in poverty um, to some extent. I mean, he still did have a massive house on the Thames, but he started to lose favour co at court as well. Men like Walter Raleigh were on the rise. His wife died of plague. Uh, then Elizabeth died shortly afterwards, and James I was super suspicious of witchcraft and anything related to that, so Dee was not in favour at court at all anymore. So he lived out his final days at Mortlake, um, and he was looked after by his daughter, who was in her 20s at that point, and he was kind of in relative poverty. And we're not really sure what happened after that. He likely died between 1608 and 1609, was probably buried locally, but there's no records of his grave. Mortlake doesn't exist anymore. I would love to go and see, like, a big National Trust or English Heritage House where it's Mortlake, where Dee lived. But, no, nope, that's all gone. 
So it seems like it was a really sad ending, really, to such a great man with such potential. And I think he, I do think he was an honest man and he truly believed in everything he studied and everything he kind of preached. Um, I use that word almost ironically. When he started to first get rich, really, he had bought himself a parish and was just essentially an absentee vicar. So, <laughs> I mean, he was dealing with angels, so yeah, religious, and a bishop let him off for treason because he was a religious man, but I mean, nothing else sounds religious to me, but maybe I'm just biased because magic. But anyway, he seemed to be, I think, fooled a bit by Kelly. Um, I think of the two, Kelly was probably in it for the money and in it for the fame, more than in it for the integrity of scholarly work. And maybe he got just caught up in it and they really did believe everything they were doing. But I think Kelly had an ulterior motive. And I think Dee was just unfortunate in kind of being at the wrong end of that, really, which I think is such a shame. It makes me really annoyed. But I'm glad at least that Dee's name lives on, even if it's just through this podcast, that this is the only time you've ever heard about him and you will never hear about him again. But at least you've heard about him now and you can do with that what you will. He was just... He was such a cool guy that was into alchemy, divination, astrology, all things esoteric. He created his own language. I mean, that's like Tolkien level cool. Um, and I think it's I think it's nice that almost like the magical community, if anybody has kind of taken him in and kept him alive rather than the church, because I think that's more where he belonged. He belongs in a little witchy house somewhere with loads of herbs and potions and kind of like a nice Snape is what I'm imagining. Um, I think this is why I've always been really interested in him. I feel like he's a bit of a Tudor Merlin figure. And it's like, yeah, I know. Why is she always obsessed with Arthurian legend? Can she talk about anything without mentioning it? No, I can't. Okay. Quite simply, no. Um, but I feel like he's that kind of character. And I mean, Shakespeare even basically immortalized him makes sense they're all kind of at the same time but if any of you have ever read or seen the tempest um apparently prospero was kind of based on d which is really cool um but nobody knows about this which is it's a it's a shame okay um getting worked up i'm getting emotional i just like him okay but i've always been interested in d i think when i was about 16 i started writing a story about him um, stay tuned one day that might I might write that again um, but it, this this podcast actually was sparked because I was in Glastonbury recently in one of my favorite shops the speaking tree and I saw on the shelf and I go in there very regularly so I literally know what's in stock and there was the John D oracle deck and I was like oh my god I needed to get it obviously got it it's beautiful I love it um, but it kind of sparked reignited my love of D um, and a lot of the information that I've been talking about today is thanks to John Matthews and Will Kingen, who wrote that and did a lot of research about it. Um, and at least Dee's also kind of captured the imagination of Damon Albarn, like wrote a big thing about him and wrote basically like a musical. So he kind of, he's in the shadows, but I, he, he needs to be more in the forefront. So now he will be. So I challenge you all tomorrow, today, whenever you are listening to this, whatever time is appropriate, 
to go out and mention John D in some form of your life. And if you manage to do it, please comment or please message me and let me know because I really want to know how you get John D in a conversation in your everyday life because this is going to be fun. So please do that. I might start doing that more with my podcast and challenge you to talk about something in in life because, I mean, you'll just sound like a history nerd, which is great because that's what I sound like on a very regular basis. So there we have it. A whistle-stop tour of the history of John D. Um, nothing strange or startling. I haven't just discovered a secret crypt in Richmond with 17 angels buried in it with six panels of Enochian language that will decode the future of our planet and something else that could be in a Lara Croft game. Unfortunately, no. I'm just sitting in my room in my house talking about John D and some history. <laughs> One day, please pray for me that that might happen, that I can be Lara Croft in real life, but Till then, I just want to talk about one of the first and greatest magicians in British history. And so you now know that he was in Tudor England, buddies, well, <laughs> not buddies, contemporary with Shakespeare and Elizabeth I. And just my excuse to talk about Elizabeth I a little bit because she's cool. Um, so thank you very much for listening. I hope it's been of some use or satisfied some history hunger that you might have had today. Uh, if you've got any comments or things you'd like me to do in a future podcast please let me know um and thank you very much for listening i will see you guys next time i hope you all have a magical day ciao for now